0: As many of you know, I do my best to try to adopt somewhat of a healthy lifestyle. I try to eat as healthy as I can. However, there are times that it's just not possible and doesn't happen. And I will tell you that no matter how devoted I am in my lifestyle walk, if you will, that there are a few weaknesses that if you bring to the table, no matter how strong I am mentally... No matter how strong I think I might be physically, or even spiritually, I will cave in. And that is when you bring pizza to the table. I knew you thought I was probably going to say fried chicken, but it's actually pizza. May I take you back to my childhood? Growing up in Boone's Mill, I didn't have the luxury of being able to call Pizza Hut for delivery or Domino's or any other place. So we had to go to Canada's, the gas station, and buy a frozen DiGiorno pizza. Does anybody know what that is? Pretty good pizza, not bad for the price. Sometimes we would get the cheese pizza, loaded with cheese. Sometimes we would get the pizza that had, that had cheese and pepperoni, but then there were times when, when we would get what is called the supreme pizza. And the supreme pizza is set apart from all the rest because it has not only cheese and not only pepperoni, but it has also the peppers and the sausage and the ham and the onions, and everything else you can imagine that they throw on to that pizza. It is called a supreme pizza because it has more toppings than all the other types and flavors of pizza. Today, of course, I didn't come to preach a message about pizza. But I came to preach a message about something that is far greater and far more supreme than the supreme pizza. And that is Jesus Christ. Today, really, the, 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 the sum of this chapter is this, is the writer is speaking about the superiority of Jesus Christ. And so today, if I could just label my thoughts with anything, it would be this. Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is supreme. As we have been studying the book of Hebrews, we know that as the writer of Hebrews has been exposing the Old Testament and, and applying it to the believer in, the, in this scene in the Hebrew faith, that is, the Hebrew Christians. We know that the writer's expounding about how Jesus is greater than the prophets, how He is greater than the angels, how He was greater than Moses, and greater than Joshua, and greater than Aaron. And we see right here in this chapter, really actually beginning back in chapter 4, the last few verses in chapter 4, all the way here, and really extending into chapter 10, we see that the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing the priesthood of Jesus Christ and how he is the high priest. And so we see that Jesus is greater than all these things. And here in the first few verses, we see that extension. But then we see a little rabbit trail that the writer of Hebrews takes later on in the chapter. He talks about how the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. How the New Testament is greater than the Old Testament. And today, I want to share this with you. That Jesus Christ is superior... To everything in the Old Testament. The Old Testament simply points to Jesus Christ and how he is the fulfillment of all that. And how he is far greater than anything in Genesis to Malachi. Why is he supreme? Why is Jesus Christ superior than everything else in the Old Testament? Well, I'm glad you asked because today I want to briefly share with you three reasons from our 13 verses here about why Jesus Christ is not just the great, the greatest high priest and the supreme being, but but how he is, is, is the greatest of all time and how he is the supreme being of all time from here in these verses in light of the Old Testament. Look in verses, verse number one is the first thought I want to share with you. Christ is a greater priest because of his superior seat. Christ is a greater priest because of his superior seat. Let's look at verse number one. The Bible says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. He is about ready to summarize everything that he's been discussing about the priesthood and about that whole system. And here, in other words, he says, in other words, he's saying like I say, if I could share anything with you, this is what I want you to walk away with. And here's what he says. He says, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This is a a unique figure of speech that occurs throughout the New Testament that just simply is relaying to us this thought that Jesus Christ is God and he's seated on his throne. I know that a lot of people are trying to get a certain seat in our world today, especially this year. But I want you to know this, that the greatest seat is not the seat in Washington. The greatest seat is in the heavenly throne, and that is the throne of God. Here, we see that not only does Jesus have the greatest name of all time, not only does Jesus have the greatest character of all time, not only does he have the greatest priesthood of all time, he has the greatest seat of all time. No matter how fancy of a seat that you have in your living room, you know, you can go to the furniture store and buy the best lazy boy money can buy. But it doesn't compare to the seat that Jesus has on his throne in glory. And today I want you to know this, that as we think about verse number one, we have to also pause and reflect that when Jesus is on his throne, that means he is totally sovereign of his creation and that he is in absolute total control. So even though chaos might be brewing among us in our world, we know that God is in control and God declares the end from the beginning and things have to take place in our culture and our world for the future things to come. I also thought about Revelation chapter 3, about how we will have the great privilege of sitting on the throne with Jesus in the days to come. And you know the, the, the reason why John is writing these first couple chapters of the book of Revelation is to these churches, a message to these churches. And to the church of Laodicea, he says these last and final words. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. I also thought about what John said in 1 John chapter 5, in verse number 4. He said, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith the way we can overcome sin the way we can overcome death the way we can overcome the grave and the way we can overcome hell is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and because he lives we are able to overcome and because he is overcome we are able to do what he said we can do today he is majesty Today, he owe, we owe Him our full mental, spiritual, and physical allegiance because He is the greatest sovereign of all time. Christ is a greater priest because of His superior seat. His seat is in heaven, not on this earth. His throne is in glory, not here in the nations of this world. But I will have to pause and say this, that while Jesus is sitting on on his throne in heaven, is he sitting on the throne of your heart? You see, there's a difference between knowing who is the king of kings and having the king of kings live inside of you. And today here, I believe that the writer of Hebrews is reminding us that while he is on the throne in glory, he needs a reservation in our hearts. And if we do not allow him to take place in our hearts and to come into our lives and and the Holy Spirit to fill us, then we will not be granted to go into that glorious place called heaven in the days to come. Christ is a greater priest because of his superior seat. And by the way, there is no other God in this world who can not only have the greatest seat of all time in glory, but still reign as king in your heart. God is so big, the heavens can't contain him, but yet God is so small, he can fit in your heart. That's how one preacher described him. Look at verse 2. As we read verses 2 through 5, I I, want to share with you a second thought today about why Christ is supreme. I wrote down this, Christ is a greater priest because of his superior sanctuary. Christ is a greater priest because of his superior sanctuary. Not only does he have a great seat, but he has a great sanctuary. He has a great place of worship. Heaven is going to be an amazing place. And we sing about heaven here today. And how we will get to spend all eternity worshiping Almighty God. But look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. You see, in these next few verses, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, we see the writer of Hebrews is going back into the Old Testament. And there he is. He is talking about Moses and the tabernacle and the sanctuary of the Old Testament. But I want you to know this. The sanctuary that that, that, that is being revealed here is not about an earthly sanctuary. It's an heavenly sanctuary. Look at verse number 2. It says, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Yes, this points back to the Old Testament as we see in verse number 5. Yes, it points back to when they were nomadic and they, the Israelites moved from town to town, place to place, and they, they set up that tabernacle on there. They worship God in, in a unique fashion. But I want you to know this, that, that Jesus Christ came and tabernacled among us so that He could tabernacle within us. You see, He has created you and me. We are literally... Um, created in God's image and now the New Testament tabernacle is is not this place we call brick and mortar a sanctuary here but the God's tabernacle in the New Testament is your physical body And He wants to have residence in your body. The Bible says that we've been bought with a price, that we are called to glorify God in our spirit and in our body, which are God's. The Bible says that whatever we eat, whatever we drink, do all for the glory of God. And the reason why we're to do all these things is because our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And why should we defile the the holy, sacred temple that God is residing in, that is His Spirit in us? So notice this, that the tabernacle of the Old Testament was the place they built. The tabernacle of the New Testament is the place that God reigns in our hearts, but the tabernacle in eternity is the place that God is sitting at right now on His throne. Verse number 2, it speaks about how how the tabernacle in the Old Testament was, was what man built. What is what Moses built? In verse number 5, it reveals to us that God gave Moses, and really, we believe this is referring back to Exodus 25, and then God gave Moses specific duties and laws and, and requirements about how to set up this tabernacle. And he did it. They did it. And here the Bible says that there's a tabernacle that was made by men, but another tabernacle that was made by God. Yes, we believe that God is the one who created everything. Yes, we believe that God is the creator of the world and the maker of all things. And we know that, that as we look into the sky, we see the constellations and that's what God did. We know that when we look in this earth, we know that this is a result of God's creation. But here, it speaks about how this is, this, this place, this true tabernacle and sanctuary is what God built and not man. I know that sometimes man becomes arrogant and prideful and we think that we are a lot better than what we, we that God knows we are. But let me tell you something. There's no temple. There's no place of worship. As prestigious as Solomon's temple was with all the royal gold and fancies, it doesn't compare to God, God's temple in glory. As, as, as you can go to, to, to a... An Islamic mosque and how it could be so picture perfect and have all the fancies. It doesn't compare to the place that God has built in glory. No matter if you go to the the Mormon temple in in Utah or some other pagan temple in our world or even a nice fancy church facility. It doesn't compare to the fanciness and great awe of Jesus Christ's temple in glory. He's built it, not man. Man has built a lot of great things, but one thing man cannot build is the tabernacle that God sits on in glory, the sanctuary in his seat. Look at verse number three. It says, for every high priest is ordained. That means that they are, they are appointed to have a specific task and their duty was to go in to offer these sacrifices to God. And the Bible says that, that there's a need for another priest to come that is a high priest and he would offer something similar is they would bring in the, the turtle doves and the actual physical lambs, but Jesus offered himself. Praise God for that. And here we see in verse number four, for if, it, for if he were on the earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. In other words, I believe what verse four is speaking to us is that this high priest, that is the greatest high priest of all time, the most supreme being of all time is, is not made like man is made. But this man, if you will, was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. And his priesthood and his his responsibilities is set apart from men. He is not just man, but God in flesh. And then we see the writer quotes Moses. Listen, there is no sanctuary. There is no house of worship that compares to the house of worship in eternity. And let me just pause and let us reflect here. I think this year has reminded us of the simple truth that the church is not the steeple. The church is the people. That is, we are the body of Christ. And when we gather together, it doesn't matter if we're outside in a parking lot. It doesn't matter if we're in a park. It doesn't matter if we're, we're up in the trees or, or, you know, swimming in the ocean. It doesn't matter where we are. When we gather together as a body of believers, we are the church. And God has established this church, not we ourselves. And it is in this earthly sanctuary that we worship the God who we call Almighty. And this is just a a simple taste of what it's going to be like in glory when we, for all eternity, get to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ is supreme, Jesus Christ is greater. And better than anything else in the Old Testament. But now I'd like to draw your attention really to the last part of this chapter. In Hebrews chapter 8, we see a a beginning discussion about the priesthood and Jesus' roles as the high priest. But then we see the transition from verses 6 down through verse 13 about how the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. And the third and final reason of why I believe Jesus is supreme is found here in these last several verses that I want to park and just hang on to and walk us through these verses. Here's the thought I want to relate to you. Christ is a greater priest because of his superior covenant. Christ is a greater priest because of his superior covenant. Not not only does he have a superior sanctuary and a place of worship, and not only a superior seat and throne to sit on, but Jesus has a greater promise that is for us than ever made in history. We talk about The prophets and Moses and Joshua and the angels and Maron and all these others in the Old Testament. But they don't compare to Jesus. And now the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, The Old Testament is incomplete without the New Testament. And the New Testament is greater than the Old Testament. Because the New Testament is not only extra revelation that God has given to us, but it is revelation that is fulfilled from the Old Testament revelation. That is, where the Old Testament wasn't able to offer full salvation, full and free, the New Testament provides it for us. Now, yes, we believe the Old Testament saints were saved and born again, but their debt wasn't fully paid for until the cross where Jesus died. And that is why the new covenant is greater. Look at verse number six. The Bible says, but now has he obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is the mediator. Say that word with me, mediator. Say it again, mediator. One more time, please. Mediator, this means like a go-between. and As somebody who who is trying to reconcile one party and another party, bringing two parties that are at odds with each other and making them one again. And we see Jesus Christ is our mediator. As Paul said, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And here we see the role again. And see, Jesus is the only one who could could bring the two parties, God Almighty and sinful humanity, back together again. And in verse number six, we see that this is done through a better covenant that the Old Testament did not have. That is the Mosaic law. And then he goes on to say, which was established upon better promises. Verse seven. Here is where the writer begins to emphasize why he believes the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. And he says, for if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. He said, if the first covenant that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament law could have wiped away all sin, there would be no need for a second. If the first covenant that God gave to Moses in the Mosaic Law could have have overcome death, hell, and the grave, and eternity separated from God, then there'd be no need for the second covenant to be. And so here we see in verses 8 down through verse 13, we see a long list of reasons why the old covenant does not compare to the new covenant. And let's look at verse number 8. Here in verse number 8, the thought is this. The new covenant was authored by God. I know there's a lot of people out there who think that the New Testament was just a, a fabric of man's imagination. But I want you to know this, that the New Testament is literally inspired by God just as the Old Testament was. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is preserved. It is the Word of God. And the, the writer here is, is talking to these Jewish Christians. And he's saying, guys, listen, I need you to understand this, that, that the New Testament fulfilled in Jesus. It, it, listen, the Old Covenant can't compare to what Jesus has done for us. And then, and then look at verse 8. For finding fault with them, that is the old covenant and some of the, the old promises that we're not able to ultimately bring the redemption that God has. He said these words, quoting Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, the days come when I will make a new covenant. We see that this is not something that Paul the apostle made. This is not something that Peter made. This is not something that John made. This is not something that James made. But this was a covenant established by God to his people. To Jeremiah first. Jesus has used men to be the instruments to write down his word. But we understand that if you will... Men, mankind are the keyboards in which God types out his sovereign plan. Man is the is the utensil, is the is just the is this the pencil and pen that God takes and writes out his word through. And we see that God has established and made and authored this great covenant. In verse number nine, we'll come back to the rest of verse eight in a few moments, but verse number nine teaches us that the new covenant is different from the old covenant. It's vastly different, my friends. Have you ever read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? And have you ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the Pauline epistles? It is vastly different. You see, the Old Testament is all about law. The New Testament is all about grace. And we see the Old Covenant had conditional promises that was given to the land of Israel, and the people in the Old Testament say, if you obey my word, then you have my blessing. But if you disobey my word, you have my judgment. And I guess... To some aspects, the New Covenant has conditional promises as well. That is, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be granted eternal life. And if you do not trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will not have eternal life in heaven. But it's vastly different. Everything about the Old Testament is different than the New Testament. We see that when Jesus comes in Matthew's Gospel, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard it said of old time. And he quotes Scripture. And he says, But I say unto you, And he does that over and over again in chapter 5 of Matthew. And so we see that Jesus is just revealing to us how different the Old Testament was. And verse number 9 recalls our memory and and, and just takes us back to to the book of Exodus when God led his people out of Egypt and God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai and how God's people in the Old Testament, even though they saw all the miracles, still regarded not God's word. And because they chose to disobey God's word, God... Let them go under the captivity of Babylon in the days of Jeremiah. In verses 8 and 10, we see another thought that the New Covenant teaches us. The New Covenant was made for and with Israel. Oftentimes we read through the New Testament and we think that this is all for the church. But I want you to know this, this new covenant was not established by the church and for the church. This covenant was for the people of Israel. Look at verse number number 8, quoting from Jeremiah 31. In fact, it's verses 31 through 34, if you'd like to go back and take a look at it later today or this week. But he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he establishes what it's not going to be. And then in verse number 10, he elaborates and establishes what it will be. He says, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. I find it interesting that when we think about these old prophets... We think about Isaiah, we think about Ezekiel, we think about Zechariah, we think about all these Daniel, all of these different Old, Pro- Old Testament prophets, and how God used them all in a unique way. But when we think about Jeremiah, his is totally different. You see, Jeremiah preached in an age when God commanded him to go preach God's word. And he said, and by the way, I want you to know that, um, you know, um, nobody's going to listen to you, and I'm not going to let you marry anybody. So nobody's going to offer you consolation and encouragement. So there he's out preaching, and not only do they hate his message, they mock his message and they, they, they try to kill him. <laughs> and because he is preaching down and thundering down a message, hey, get right with God, our judgment's coming. And judgment came through Babylon. And I find it interesting that Jeremiah, he saw no fruit in his day in his ministry. But we see fruit of his ministry today. And when we think of a of a ministry or a church or, or a pastor or somebody who's unsuccessful, they may just be unsuccessful in man's eyes. But they might be mighty successful in God's eyes. And see, Jeremiah was probably an unsuccessful prophet. No converts, no synagogues popping up to be started, and everybody wanted to kill him. But we see that God establishes his covenant, his new covenant, not with Isaiah, not with Ezekiel, not with Daniel, not with anybody else, but with the prophet Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet, who probably spent more time weeping than rejoicing. And here we see that, that listen, God can use you no matter what you're going through. God can use you just like God used Jeremiah. And God establishes his, prophet, his covenant first with Jeremiah and then extended to the whole house of Israel. And now we are beneficiaries of this covenant that was established with them we read that in Romans how that we as a church have been grafted in how Israel has rejected God's word over and over and now he has set them aside for a period of time he's not finished with them and he has allowed us to be grafted in to receive these great benefits of the new covenant of salvation and eternal life God is not finished with Israel. Time doesn't allow me to go into all those details, but God will come back and establish His earthly kingdom. And there, in the tribulation period, God will use 144,000 Jewish evangelists to win the nations with the gospel. And many will come to know Christ. But the new covenant was first and foremost established for and with Israel. But look at verse 9. As we think about verse 9 again, we see that this verse reveals to us about the law of Moses. And even in verse 5, really. The New Covenant will not be based on legalism. That is, when you read the New Testament, it's not like Leviticus and it's not like Deuteronomy. It's not like the Old Testament law where, where, the, where Moses comes down and he, and he says, Thou shalt not, and, and, and he has all these other specific laws of everything that you've got to do. You see, where the Old Covenant was about law, the New Covenant... Is about grace. The the law brought condemnation. Grace brings salvation. You see, the law, all it does is it reveals our sin. And then the grace of God, the new covenant, it reveals that, that our sin is so great, it can only be forgiven through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why we need Jesus, and that's why we have a new covenant. And so don't get, don't get too tied up on about all the rules and regulations that man tries to make in New Testament Christianity. We know that, that our relationship with God is so important that if there's anything in our lives that's hindering our walk with Him, let's just get it out. And let's pursue Jesus with everything we've got. The new covenant, as we read in verse 10, will be internal, not external. As he's quoting Jeremiah, he begins to speak about how this new covenant he, God is going to place the laws into the minds and hearts of men. God has given us all a conscience. This is a law that is not going to be written out on pieces of paper like it was for Moses, but this is a law that's going to be written on minds and hearts, and God has given us all a conscience so that we can clearly understand that that conscience is pointing us to a great higher power, a creator. And in light of Scripture, and in light of the light con- of our conscience, we know that that higher power is Jesus Christ and Him only. Verse 11, the new covenant. I like this one. It's personal. It's not for just a whole nation, it's for individuals. As I read verse 11, I think about how Jesus died a personal death, Jesus also had a personal birth, Jesus had a personal resurrection. Jesus personally ascended up to glory and Jesus will personally descend back down from heaven and come to this earth. And Jesus personally laid our sins on the cross so that we could personally know him as our Lord and Savior. So my question for you is simply this. Do you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And if you do, is your lifestyle matching your profession and declaration? Because listen, actions speak louder than words. Don't tell me you know Christ. Show me you know Christ. Jesus died a personal death so that we could experience the the personal second birth and so that we can personally live for him all the days of our lives. Verse 12 is my favorite verse of this chapter. Hands down. I don't think any of the other... I know they're all inspired. I know they're all inerrant. But in my mind, in my opinion, in my humble, unbiased opinion, this verse is set apart than all the rest. Because it gives us the greatest hope about why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Listen to this verse. It says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Here's the thought about the new covenant. The new covenant offers complete forgiveness. You see, the old law could not do that. Only through Jesus can our sins be wiped away. Now, I have to pause and reflect here. God is omniscient. We believe that. We believe that God doesn't have to take a class in high school. He doesn't have to go to college to get more knowledge. God already knows it all. He's omniscient. He is all-knowing. And so the God who knows everything about everything about everything about everything decides to forget one thing. And that is the sins of all those who know Him as Savior. And so today we should just pause and just thank God that we have been redeemed, that we have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that my sins that I have sinned, past, present, and future sins, have been nailed to the old rugged cross there so that Jesus Christ can take them and he can remember them no more. He can throw them at the bottom of the ocean, over 36,000 feet deep. He can take them and move them, remove them as far as the east is from the west. And listen, the one thing God forgets is the sins that we've committed. And I'm thankful for that. But my question is this, has God forgotten your sins? Listen, if you cross through that doorway of death, God will remember your sins for all eternity if you don't know Christ. But if you, if you commit your life to Him now and believe the gospel and ask Him to forgive you, then your sins will be forgotten for all eternity. And here we see that is the role of a priest. The role of a priest was to go in and, and sprinkle the blood there. And by the way, that seat in the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies was a seat that the priest could not sit on. He couldn't sit there. In fact, the only thing that sat on that seat was the Shekinah full glory and splendor of God between the cherubim's wings. And there he'd throw the blood down. And there the glory of God would come down and then he would get out of there. And I'm telling you, God is seated on his great throne. And because he's sitting on his great throne, he intercedes for us so that we could have our sins covered by His blood. And verse 13, it tells us, a new covenant, He has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. Here as we read verse 13, we have to pause and say this, the new covenant is for today. It is for right now. And this was a message that that this writer of Hebrews was trying to convey to these believers. And it's a message that we have to be reminded today that Jesus is supreme. He is. He's the greatest figure of all time. No man or woman compares. Right now, I know what year it is. I know it's election year and everybody's all about blue or red. Everybody's about donkey or... Or elephant. But let me just tell you something. It's not about blue or red. It's about purple. It's about the color of royalty that Jesus wears. It's not about an elephant or a donkey. It's about a simple lamb that died on Calvary 2,000 years ago. So I say this year, let's get our minds off of what's going on in this culture. And let's fix our minds on glory where the greatest king is sitting on his throne. And there he he is in full glory and full splendor. And he is the king of not just the throne and glory, but also our hearts here on this earth. And today, there's no other being that deserves that place than Him alone. Jesus Christ is supreme. He has a superior covenant. He has a superior sanctuary. And He has a superior seat. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you, and have a great week.